We're talking crops this week. We're taking a look at corn and soybeans in the Midwest, an update on small grains in the East, and news of a new brand name for a hybrid wheat program. Welcome to Around Farm Progress, a weekly podcast that looks at agriculture issues across the country. I'm Willie Boat, your host and editorial director for Farm Progress. Crops are the focus this time out, and we're checking in with three editors this week. First up will be Tom Beckman with Indiana Prairie Farmer. He has been conducting crop plot work for nearly 20 years for Farm Progress. His work in corn and soybeans has provided farmers valuable information over the years, so we learn what he's seeing already in 2021. And this year, he's doing plenty of work flagging fields to check emergence and crop condition. Then we'll get a glimpse of small grains breeding work on the eastern seaboard with John Hart with Southeast Farm Press. The technology at work is speeding new varieties to market, and we'll get an update on malting barley variety development for that region too. And we wrap up with a report from Jennifer Latsky at Kansas Farmer who spoke with Gustavo Gonzalez. He's the BASF Global Crop Strategy Lead, and he has some news regarding the company's hybrid wheat program. Let's check in with Tom Beckman from Indiana Prairie Farmer. Tom, welcome to Around Farm Progress. How are things out in Indiana? Uh, doing pretty well, Willie. A little wet this morning. Uh, we kind of were in a rainy spell the last three or four days, uh, two or three days at least, but uh, overall doing pretty well. Good, good. And we're talking today about plots. You've been doing work with a sort of a soybean watch and a corn watch program for more than a couple of decades. I know as long as I've been here, we've been doing some stuff with that in different forms. You've kind of firmed that up in the last few years. So what are you seeing in your plots this year? Yeah, um, we'll talk about, let's talk about corn first. Perfect. About five years ago, we I did this what called us crop watch. It was mainly corn and I decided uh, we needed to spend more time with beans too. So we split it about five years ago and uh, I have it going both ways. But the corn plot this year, we decided to do, well, I did last year an emergence test where I flagged corn as it came up. And this year, the cooperator has a 24-row planter. Uh, it's multi, he's he's uh, added to it. It wouldn't, didn't come this way, but it's multi-hybrid. Biggest thing, he had a downforce, with a, so he had to add electric railway units. That, so this year it's got, um, so I wanted to do a 24-row pass in no-till. Had The field was half no-till and half conventional. And uh, so I did eight rows. I flagged eight rows of uh, conventional and 24 rows and no-till, and that's a lot of flags, I'll tell you. But... Uh, it turned out he planted April 25th, which there was a lot planted way before that in Indiana, but um, then it turned cool. I just got the weather data yesterday um, that that next 25 days after planting, about three-fourths of those days were uh, below normal max and minimum temperature, uh, as much as 10 to 15. Now 10 to 20 degrees below or deviation from normal on the lows. As you expect, um, what it did was we started emerging at day 10 after planting, and we went all the way to day 25. Um, so we've got uh, it really. It's colorful. It's not what you want to see, but there is a lot to learn there, and we're just starting to try to peel back the onion. Well, I mean that's a. <laughs> 
let's see. We try to get the corn emerged at a reasonable time in the same, you know, in a relatively tight time frame. Of course, that didn't happen. But this weather has been crazy. I mean, we had some frost in some areas in that same time frame in northern parts of the country with on corn and soybeans. So, right. but you're saying the corn, the corn's starting to recover. You, you've had a little more uh, time with it. It never really, this corn never suffered except Good. it just was slow coming up. And talking with uh, Steve Galk from Bex, who helps on the soybean side, but we also talk corn, um, he believes we may find that uh, when it uh, early like this, the emer- a longer emergence window may not be the problem that it is if you plant late May or June, and then the, then you get late emergers uh, when they act like weeds. We're going to see. Um, I'm not taking all 32 rows to yield, but I will take a handful and do it by hand. Okay. But um, some interesting things come out. Uh, the no-till started emerging a day later, and at uh, about 18 days after planting, uh, it was about 2,500 behind on average population. And at uh, my final check, 25 days after planting, the no-till was uh, 30,600 averaged over those 24 rows population. The conventional was 29.9. Uh, farmer couldn't hardly believe it, but uh, and but it's real. I've I've been across the field taking tissue samples since then, and uh, that's I, I got to believe that's pretty accurate. And the no-till is maybe half a growth stage behind in some places, but it's it's catching up. That's interesting. And when you say no-till, you went no-till into beans or no-till following corn? No, no-till into beans. Okay. And uh, the conventional is either um, one or two pa- – I think it's two passes ahead of, after beans ahead of the planter. Okay. I'm just it's not, it's not full tilly. It's not like chiseling or anything like that. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Um, based on that, though, um, I mean, that's that's fascinating. To me, and then you were talking earlier about uh, we were talking before we came on about soybeans. You're a little early with your beans this year. Um, some people were early. We had a window, and people started planting, especially in southern Indiana, but all the way um, up to here. And uh, the same farmer that I have the corn on planted uh, quite a few beans the first ten days of April. Hmm. Um, and we looked at a field Monday that he planted April 7th or 8th. Um, stand isn't perfect. Uh, some of it was uh, cutting through residue and various things, but uh, definitely still very full potential, probably 100,000 or better stand. And the field we're looking at, our, our actual soybean watch field this year, which is was planted May fifteenth. Mm. We we did have some people that there was some rain and there was still in eastern Indiana they just got it really got planted the last uh, two weeks and stuff's just pretty small but um, or maybe last three weeks but uh, the the May fifteenth stuff because of rain it was no till into corn stalks both these fields were and uh, fifteen inch rows. And they struggled some. There's some slugs. There's some uh, sidewall compaction, but the stand's going to wind up 90 to 100,000. And uh, 
the agronomist Steve Gow, anything over 80, he's tickled with. He thinks we need to be thinner rather than thicker and uh, because of the branching that can happen. And it's all right. about nodes per acre. Yeah, it, it is nodes per acre, and we're getting a better handle on how these beans perform. Absolutely. And 200,000 populations are not a good investment. So, yeah, you hear horror stories. You know, the old days we were trying to figure out how high we should really go, right? Now we're trying right. to figure out how low we can go. How low we can go. And he doesn't think we're there yet, actually. But oh. it's a hard sell, especially when you're looking at uh, somebody's my age or farmers that from my my era that uh, they, they have a hard harder time getting used to it. But the data almost every time bears it out that. Um, so we're seeing the uh, but the the secret to the early planting soybeans, they did well planted in early April in this part of the world last year. They seem to be off to a good start this year. Um, the ones that were planted really early for the most part, it's it's getting those extra nodes. Early they put on they node closer together. The nodes are uh, there's more nodes. There'll be more pods. That seems to be the the secret. Interesting. It'd be interesting. And then yeah, because with soybeans, obviously there are so many other factors. It's great to get the nodes. It's great to get the blossoms, and then all kinds of stuff happens. But right. <laughs> so, but it'll be interesting to see how these the early one works out, and how your actual soybean plot, your one planted in May fifteenth work out as well you know right. you mentioned something about your farmer that worked with he had added downforce right um i mean that is an area that we've talked about we actually in the farm progress virtual experience last fall we had a discussion about what would i add to my planter if i was going to keep my planter versus upgrade and downforce was the one that came up right i mean we, we've talked about this what did you think about it what do you think about his emergence on his own crop using that add-on um i have i didn't actually ask him that question directly but I can't talk for him, but from what I've seen, from what others are saying, I don't think there's any question about it. The downforce uh, definitely helped. What we're seeing, it may not be the end of the story, though. Um, I think maybe there's uh, another step, um, and that is just because you got the right downforce in each row, if those rows aren't all set at the same depth, you may still not get uniform emergence or you know the right standard uh i haven't got in this is coming later but big variation across that 24 row pass that's why i wanted to do the pass mm -hmm. uh, he's got good spacing but some some came up um, much quicker than others and some rows ended up better than others in conventional and no-till and uh you know there's different patterns in wheel traffic but um uh talked to a guy an agronomist this week already that uh i guess now um precision some of the dealers can well, they've got a device simple device that they can check your depth row to row before you go to the field and they checked their planter and even though and it was several rows were way off hmm. so it may be a just because you got the downforce the downforce will put it where it's supposed to be as far as the pressure, but if the planter itself, if the rows are, or if the depth settings are off, then you're still going to get different results. So that's a new thing to look at. It's just kind of part of the unraveling the onion. And uh, 
thought downforce was the final piece, and now I'm not so sure it is. Well, it's interesting because it, it, it also brings up the fact that all uh, the chain from the front of the planter to the back of the planter, everything needs to be lined up. Right. So if it, downforce will help you get through residue. It will help you provide consistent seed to soil contact. But if your if your row unit isn't set for the right height, the downforce can only do so much for you. That uh, that makes perfect sense. So right, and that's um, kind of interesting. What, yeah, it's not that. Uh, so some of my some of my results. I mean, some of them may say, well, that that equipment doesn't do what it's supposed to. No, I don't think that's it. I think the equipment's doing exactly what it's supposed to. There's just more more to it than uh, what we might have thought so uh, and i'm not trying to i'm just documenting what you know what i see and uh we're trying to answer these questions and i uh hope i think that's what we're going to find out so well, i mean uh, uh yeah steve actually has an intern no well uh, a new i guess a new employee looking at uh Soybean emergence, it's much tougher to track and to see if there's any reason to track it, if those later mergers in soybeans act any different or not. But that's a whole different animal. Right now on soybeans, it's more about making sure you have, you know, what stand do you have and how will it perform. So, yeah, and then taking care of it once you get it up. Absolutely. So, right. That's true. Well, Tom, it's always a pleasure talking to you. It's good to catch up on your plots. Obviously, we're going to follow up. When you get closer to uh, finish, you know, finishing them off, I want to keep me posted and we'll set this up and have you on the podcast. I think it'd be great to talk more about what you're learning and uh, especially on some of those other issues we discussed today. Good to talk to you, sir. Take care and stay safe. Thank you, Willie. Same to you. We thank Tom for the crop work he does. His infield reports offer a glimpse at conditions on a micro level, but also insights on new ideas regarding crop production. And speaking of new ideas for crop production, John Hart with Southeast Farm Press learned plenty at his first live field day in some time. He shares insights he picked up from the Virginia Tech Small Grains Field Day. Let's check in with John. John, welcome to Around Farm Progress. Uh, thank you, Willa. Glad to be here. So before we get started talking about uh, your first live field event, why don't you give me a lowdown on what uh, what the weather's like out in your part of the world, in the Carolinas and Virginia. What, what's going on with crops out there? Actually, this is one of the driest springs this area's ever had, and that's been been tough on the farmers. May was May was very dry, but start at the end of May and first part of June, we got plenty of rain, which is much needed, particularly for the corn and for the peanuts and the cotton. So they're they're happy now. For a while there, they were really worried that it might have been a, a catastrophe, but the, the timing was right, and now they're got enough moisture and they, they they could use more we got a good rain in the area yesterday so we're in so far we're in good shape well that's good compared to what's going on out west that's good news that's for sure so exactly. you did attend your first live field event since 2019 recently what was that all about yeah actually yeah it was it was the um, small grains field day in in warsaw virginia which is sort of the you might say the epicenter <laughs> of small grain productions for the eastern seaboard and it was at the eastern virginia agricultural research and extension center last year it was a virtual field day and this this year was the first time it was in person in the in the crowd was good people were glad to be back and you sort of feel the excitement in the air when people were really ready to get back to an in-person event and it, it was very successful you know all 
new technology was featured, drones and the new 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 breeder who's at Virginia Tech talked about the new wheat and barley variety. So it was a, it was a good event. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. What's going on with the wheat and barley varieties? And maybe we'll start with wheat, but I think you've got some news on barley too. Yeah, I guess the main thing that the age old worry is uh, in this area, there's humidity is pretty high. And so they need special varieties that are better suited for the humid climate of the East Coast rather than, you know, the the Midwest and the West, which has the drier climate. So that's the big challenge is trying to find the varieties that do well against diseases. So that's that's the age old problem, age old challenge for for wheat breeding as as well as barley breeding. Are they making progress? Actually, they are. Yeah, they are making progress, and, and the new breeder is using new technology to to speed up the speed up the release of varieties. So they're they're making progress in that area. They are, they are they are, and it's and they're committed to it, which is a good thing. Well, I think one thing that you talked about in the story you wrote about this, which I found interesting, is the new wheat breeder kind of outlined the process. Right, you raise the crop, you keep take care of the crop. Then you get all your data when you harvest the crop and weigh the crop and do sampling. And he's changing that, right? He's doing, he's gathering data more than just at the end of the season. Yeah, actually, the change is going more towards genomic selection using high throughput phenotyping and that kind of thing. It's to, his point was let the computer do it, do all the work before it goes to the field. And that way you save a lot of time. His, his point was you could release varieties possibly in three years. When in the past, it would take sometimes 10 to 15 years to get a new variety. So that's that's his goal is to get new varieties quicker and also get the varieties that have the disease resistance and both the yield that the farmers want. So it's, Right. It's, I think one of the things he's doing would be, of course, with genomic selection would be identifying the markers for both yield and uh, disease resistance and then making sure that they're in the wheat that he's releasing. And then the I think the thing I alluded to, too, was he's doing a lot more in-season analysis exactly. of that crop. Exactly, yeah. And like I said, he's a young guy, fresh out of Cornell, so he's enthusiastic and, and has knowledge. So so exactly, that's exactly what he's doing. Great. You mentioned something to me recently that there's some work going on in barley. And, you know, anybody who's listened to this podcast knows that I've talked about barley before, and barley is a big deal. Uh, in my life, because, you know, I like beer, but there's right. some work going on with breweries and barley in Virginia, too, right? Yeah, that's that's the big news in the past. Actually, since the 1900s, they grew barley in Virginia, but mainly for for feed grain. Right. But in the past 10 years, because of the advent of the new, uh, you know, microbreweries and the brew, new, new, new breweries in Virginia, they're going more towards the, the malting variety. And right now, roughly 65% of the breeding work is directed towards malting barley. But again, it's the same old challenge that it has to be very high quality and it can't have any disease and it can't have aflatoxin, those kind of things. So that, that's the big challenge. But they're, again, they're making progress in finding the, the varieties that will work, work for brewery. And they, and they haven't released a, a couple of varieties already and they're, and they're working on more. And actually, they're, they're optimistic that they're, they're making progress. Well, there's a there's a global barley breeding program. It's run out of Oregon State University, and I believe I'm sure they're cooperating with them. Obviously, you need to grow local. 
the local conditions. The interesting thing is uh, why this matters, too, is a lot of these new breweries that have started up, these local craft breweries, the word local means something to them. Oh, exactly. So if they're sourcing their hops from the farm that's 20 miles away or they're sourcing barley from a farm that's 10 miles away, they tout that in their advertising and they make it part of their mission. Exactly right. So that's why there's there's a lot of interest in, in growing that, those varieties in, in Virginia and North Carolina as well. So it yeah, is it's an exciting time. Yeah, it is an exciting time because we're out here in the Midwest. We're starting to see more hop trellises, although most of the hops are still grown out in Idaho, Washington, and Oregon. There's a growing interest in raising hops in Wisconsin, which, by the way, used to be a center of hops production as right. well. If anybody knows anything about Wisconsin and beer, they know what I'm talking about. But, yeah, I think this is pretty exciting that the breeding program is is being market aware in terms of that kind of thing. And I think that's pretty exciting for both the farmer and for the university, I would think. Right. And a lot of farmers are, are growing multi varieties now, you know, that it, it is, it is a growing market because as you well know, they get a premium for it. So if you can do it and you can produce the quality barley necessary, you'll, you'll do okay. Yeah. There's an old story about malting barley out here where we, where they raise quite a bit in the Dakotas and you'll have a contract with brewer a and, Brewer A will come and say, well, your barley's not quite up to snuff this year. Then it always goes to Brewer B. And the funny joke about that is you need to know the name of the brewers, and it's always the one you don't like that you say that's where the bad barley goes. So it's kind of exactly, a joke yeah. in the barley business. And I'm not going to name names because I don't need a call from either of those breweries. But uh, th- I think this is an exciting business. I appreciate your time. What One other thing, you you did a live event. What is that, What was that like for you as a journalist gathering information? To be honest, it far beats, the, you know, the Zoom meetings and the computer meetings, mainly because you get to talk to people and in the breakout sessions and during the lunch and in, and in the fields and in the, in the turn rows, you might say, mainly getting to know what's going on. And, and from a more practical standpoint, it's nice to be able to take the camera and get some good live action shots in the field rather than which is hard to do when you're on the computer screen. Absolutely. I know that I've seen my fair share of screen captures, none of which I've enjoyed. But uh, but the other side of it is we need to keep in mind that one thing about virtual is that it does allow access to more people who exactly. can't maybe get there. So there's we're going to be walking a new line on the live versus virtual in the future, I think. Right. And actually, this event was both live and virtual. It was both. If you didn't want to show up in person, it was virtual as well. Interesting. It's very interesting. But me, I also, like you, would rather be uh, boots on the ground. That's for sure. Well, John Hart, it's been great talking to you about small grains development and the changes going on in uh, the eastern seaboard. You take care and stay safe. Well, thank you, Willie. I do appreciate it. The technology being deployed to improve the crops we raise keeps getting more advanced and interesting. Thanks to John Hart at Southeast Farm Press for that insight. And yes, I am excited about the malting barley developments as well. What's in a name? Good question. There's a new name for hybrid wheat being developed by BASF, and Jennifer Latsky with Kansas Farmer digs in on the topic with Gustavo Gonzalez, the BASF Global Crop Strategy Lead. We'll let them tell you the new name and give you the lowdown on the new program. Well, hello, folks. This is Jennifer Latsky, and I am here today with Gustavo Gonzalez, the BASF Global Wheat Crop Strategy Lead. And we have some exciting news coming out of BASF. We have a name for BASF's future hybrid wheat, um, Ideltis. So uh, 
sir, let's talk about what this means for growers. First off, we need to understand that there's a difference between hybrid wheats and the wheat varieties that we know and, and care about today. So could you maybe explain a little bit about that? Absolutely, Jennifer. And first of all, thank you and all to the listeners uh, today. Uh, this is a great opportunity for BSF to talk about our hybrid wheat program. Now we can finally put a name behind our brand uh, that we'll be commercializing in the future, which is Adeltis. I guess I've got a lot of questions always about how do you pronounce it, Adeltis. And it is a global brand, by the way, because uh, we're not only focusing in North America, we're also focusing in the markets in Europe. So let's get back to your question then, uh, Jennifer. You know, what are the main differences and what can we expect out of hybrid? I mean, um, if I can boil it down into three key areas, I would say number one, uh, growers will have uh, greater and more stable yield. I mean, this is top of mind uh, for many of them, right? And we need to bring back that innovation into, into wheat breeding. Uh, the second point that I like always make is the desired protein and end product functionality. Long buzzwords, but guess what? If we're talking to a miller, if we're talking to an end user, these are key aspects that they need to get from farmers. So we're pretty much uh, excited about that. And of course, the last point I want to make about it, about hybrids and the differences, is we want to improve the profitability to farmers, get that return on investment. And uh, as we know very well in North America and in the U.S. specifically, you know, if we have value behind the seeds that we purchase, we want to be able to show that return investment. So maybe, Jennifer, in a long ways, I came back to your question then. That that explains it so well. And and um, so let's talk about those advantages to the grower and to the end user at the at the mill and then eventually at the bakery or perhaps other in industries. We have a lot of um, food ingredients that uh, wheat provides to other um, other places um, or maybe we can battle food allergies. You know, we have a lot of, of um, concerns about celiac disease. What exactly um, if if you could go into a little bit of detail, what exactly are these first hybrid wheats? Um, what are you planning on addressing as far as the challenges that wheat growers face and end users face? Certainly, Jennifer. And if we take a step back and think about hybrids, okay, hybrids by themselves um, is a totally new platform. And we will see a step change in wheat breeding with hybrids. Uh, it's one of the last crops to be hybridized, uh, being row crops globally. And the, the, the benefits, uh, for, let's say, in general, is that hybrids has the opportunity to be able to combine parents in a way that through conventional breeding, uh, we wouldn't get access to it as quickly as we would, uh, given this ancient crop uh, has been grown for centuries. So the point is, um, if we can uh, integrate some disease management, if we can integrate some quality management traits, if we can integrate other aspects, as you mentioned on the health side, these are all the key benefits that in the mid to long term, hybrids bring to the market as it's done with other crops. Um, benefits also from, from a grower standpoint, when we're looking at growing a hybrid, obviously it's gonna be somewhat different not completely different, but somewhat the management of it will be different, but the potential and the outcome would be of benefit. So uh, seeding rates, the agronomy, we're going to have to look at that. And those were the things that the, the BSF team in Adeltas are really working on, on looking at that. From an endpoint uh, standpoint, your question, 
you know, what does it mean maybe for a miller? Well, stability is the name of the game for them. If they can have consistent protein in their in their intake of uh, of wheat, it obviously improves their their and enhances their operations. And this is what the name of the game is: high quality, good protein levels that makes their part of the job uh, even easier and more efficient. So those are some aspects that I can probably comment about that, Jennifer. Okay, great. Well, now we have this new brand name, um, iDeltas, and that signifies that we are a step closer to commercial availability. So I know that there's a lot of proprietary things that happen in a, in a pipeline um, such as this, but maybe could we explain to growers what they might expect at field days coming up or from their local um, seed dealers that they know and trust as far as where, where can they see this? Is it available to be seen just yet? Uh, where are we at? Great. And let's just also remember that our focus is in the hard red winter and the hard red spring types of wheat, which means central plains and the northern plains. OK, so uh, that is where we're concentrating our, our activities. Number one. Number two, um, we're coming out with our with our brand of Deltas uh, because we want to move away from just talking about a hybrid wheat and really now building the opportunity to people identify from BSF on their umbrella brand of Deltas, what are those hybrid products that they will be seeing uh, shortly in the coming years? Yes, I get the question, you know, when can I buy seeds? When is it going to be available? And the answer to that is right now we're working towards the mid-2020s here in the U.S. and in Canada as it relates to North America. So our focus right now is uh, and has been for the last 10 years very much in our field operations, in our breeding stations, we're going to take it a step further, closer to the growers, closer to our customers, so they can get to see and feel the product. And that will be, uh, for sure, much more visible now with the Adeltas brand out uh, to many folks. So you hopefully will see some of that uh, for sure in the coming uh, seasons. And uh, we look forward to engaging everybody on that topic. Okay. Well, now, um, where can folks go if they have questions about iDeltas or hybrid wheats or any of the products at BASF? I mean, I would state it very simply. We have a website uh, under www.adeltashybridwheats.com uh, at BSF. Uh, we can also redirect some of the questions through that site. Uh, in the time being, please also interact with our local um, representatives that we have in every geography in in the U.S. and hopefully they can also then tie back to the Adeltas team. But uh, we'll try to make it as, as transparent as we can make it to everybody. All righty. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Mr. Gonzalez, and good luck with the Hybrid Wheat Project. Thank you, Jennifer, and thank you for everybody listening to this. Ideltis is an interesting name and news of the progress on the BASF hybrid wheat program is fascinating. Thanks to Jennifer Latsky for her conversation with Mr. Gonzalez. You've been listening to Around Farm Progress, our weekly look at agriculture across the United States with editors from the Farm Progress team and experts in our industry. Farm Progress is the nation's leading agriculture information source with 17 state and regional brands as well as farm futures, beef, National Hog Farmer and Feedstuffs, and the Farm Progress Show and Husker Harvest Days. And there's still time to register for the 2021 Farm Futures Business Summit and Ag Finance Bootcamp, our in-person event happening next week. 
Boot camp is June 15th and the summit is June 16th and 17th. Learn more at farmfuturesummit.com and you can save 20% if you use the promo code FARMFUN, all one word, when you register. Join us next week as we continue our agriculture journey around the country. I'm Willie Vogt, Editorial Director at Farm Progress. Thanks for listening.